We're going to pause for a moment and talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do a little apologetic study here. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, Lord. And we thank you for our faith, Lord, that it's grounded upon fact, Lord. It's grounded upon evidence. And ultimately, Lord, that produces confidence. Lord, I'm reminded of John 14, Lord, where you said, Because I ascend to my Father, greater things will you do. And also, if you ask anything in my name, you will do it, Lord. And so we know the basis of, of the power of the Spirit through our life and the basis for our prayer, Lord. The, the fact that you hear our prayers, Lord, and, and work so mightily is the fact that you rose again from the dead. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just confirm that to us, Lord, over and over in Jesus' name. Amen. So it sounds cliche to use the phrase, Jesus is the answer, but you know what? It's true. Jesus is the answer for everything. He's the answer for the universal problem of sin. He's the answer to a person's void and loneliness in their life. Jesus and his grace is the answer for those who are suffering and hurting. And finally, Jesus is the answer to silence any skeptic who might confront Christianity. Now think about some of the common questions that skeptics wage against God in the Bible. I don't care how smart they are, but they all kind of use the same arguments. If God is love, why is there suffering? How can you believe in creation in light of the so-called facts of evolution? How can you believe that the Bible is true and trustworthy? How can you say that marriage is only between a man and a woman? I mean, can you really believe the ethics of the Bible? Well, really, the answer to all these questions... And many more can be summed up in three simple things. Now, yes, I mean, there are facts that we can point out, and we, and we should. But really, they can all be summed up simply in, in three simple things. Number one, what Jesus said. Number two, who Jesus is. And number three, what Jesus did. So here it is in a nutshell. Let's use creation, for example. I mean, our world today, evolutionists are, are kind of the mainstream people who don't even know anything call themselves evolutionists just because they don't want to believe in God. And here's what they say. We'll say, well, I can't really believe in the Bible because of evolution. It's, it, you know, it, it is a fact, after all. And you can know the evidence of creation, and, and you should, and you know, we can give a good argument. But here's a basic argument that we can use. Jesus in Mark chapter 10 referred to Genesis 1 and 2 as literal. He said Adam and Eve were the first creation of God, meaning human creation. And then he gave the basis for marriage, which is one man and one woman for life. And so, hey, you know what? Let's just cut it off right here. Jesus said that Genesis was literal. Genesis chapter 1 was literal, that God made man. There is no evolution. And then God also ordained marriage, one man and one woman for life. Who Jesus says, well, no scientist was there in the beginning to observe and verify. They only look at the evidence and then by faith come up with a hypothesis and then a theory. But in John 8, 58, Jesus claimed to be God. Therefore, he was there. And since Jesus is God, he knows all things. And therefore, he's telling the truth. So we have an eyewitness there. We have someone who knows what he's talking about and what Jesus did. Jesus proved what he said was true and that he is God by his evidence. He lived a sinless and miraculous life. He fulfilled prophecy, and then he rose again from the dead. So, I mean, it's a basic argument. Regardless of how smart someone is, it's a basic argument to refute what they say. It all comes back to Jesus. Now, it is springtime. It's almost Easter. It's a good time, as any time, to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that fact 
confirms that everything we have in the Bible is true. Now, there's three basic reasons why we can believe that it is reasonable to believe in the resurrection. The first one is because we know that an all-powerful God exists who can do miracles. In order to prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, you have to prove to me that an all-powerful God does not exist. And that is impossible. We know it because we just look at logic around us. We ask, can something come from nothing? Can there be a design without a designer? Can there be lifeless humanity? Or, uh, excuse me, can lifeless matter produce a moral humanity? And the answer to all these questions is no. An all-powerful, intelligent, moral God must exist for our universe to exist like it is. And if we have an all-powerful God, then it's reasonable to believe that he can do miracles, that he can raise the dead. Often when you talk to somebody about the resurrection, they say, well, it's impossible. You really expect me in the light of scientific evidence today to believe that, you know, a man died and he rose him again from the dead? He walked 40 years and he ascended to heaven? I'll say, yeah. I mean, you believe, you know, that the world came from nothing, right? And, and so, I mean, so it, it's logical. If an all-powerful God exists, which we have evidence that he does, and then it's also logical to believe that he can raise a person from the dead. The reason number two, the New Testament is a reliable history book. Everybody believes what they, you know, read in history. You go to school and you read those things in the history books and you say, well, that's a fact. George Washington crossed the River Delaware. Well, you weren't there. You never saw it, but you read it in the history book, so you believe it's true. Well, you know what? The Bible is a reliable history book. Let's talk about the internal evidence for it. There's a time gap in the New Testament, but this gap is too small for any myth to develop. The ancient historian Herodias estimated that it takes at least two generations for a myth to develop. So the 27 books of the New Testament were written around 50 to 96 AD. Out of these 27 books, only 1st to 3rd John in the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation were written after 70 AD. So the 22 books of the Bible were all written before 70 AD. Now this is cool because Jesus died in 33 AD. So this means that three out of the four Gospels were written within 20 years of the life of Jesus. It's impossible for you to make up myths with people still living about the life of Jesus if those people are still living. It's like people making up myths about Abraham Lincoln, you know, right after he was, you know, right after he died. And you can't do that. It's the time gap is too small for a myth to develop and for people to start claiming things that he really didn't do and who, you know, he said he was. Dr. Norman Geisler points out that this is amazing in comparison to the recorded histories that we have, such as the life of Alexander the Great. It was not until after a hundred years after his life that we have only small fragments that, you know, the, of the evidence that we had from him, only a hundred years. 300 to 500 years of his life that we have major historical accounts. Yet people don't doubt that he existed and that he did the things that he did. You talk to a person, oh, of course, oh yeah, he did. Well, those things are 300 to 500 years after he lived. How do you know a myth didn't develop in between there? The gospel writers were eyewitnesses. You see, the gospel writers were historians that wrote eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Concerning the four gospels, Matthew and John were actual disciples of Jesus and eyewitnesses. Mark received his information from Peter, who was an eyewitness, and John was also uh, a, uh, an, an eyewitness. And then Luke received his information from Paul, who Paul spent time with the resurrected Jesus. And so Matthew and John, eyewitnesses, 
in Luke and Mark, they received their information from people who were eyewitnesses. And so they, their testimony can be trusted. There's evidence that they wrote historical accounts. For example, the personal flaws of Bible characters and the authors aren't omitted. They didn't make stuff up about themselves. The triumph of the religious and civil authorities over Jesus are not omitted. The testimony of women are not omitted. You see, in the first century A.D., a woman's testimony was not accepted. Yet the Gospels record that the women were the first to see Jesus alive from the dead. The controversial sayings of Jesus were not expanded or explained. So if these, person, you know, if these people were embellished an account like the Egyptians did about themselves, often, you know, the king, they would make all kinds of stuff. It would, you know, the king would never look bad. They would always embellish it. Well, these guys, showing that they were right in history, recorded things just as they were, just as they were said. Now let's talk about the external evidence of the New Testament. The Bible, specifically the New Testament, has been confirmed through archaeology. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, names seven official titles that existed and that have been confirmed through archaeology. So he names all these different people showing, hey, I'm giving you an accurate historical account. And throughout the New Testament, we find other archaeological discoveries. The copies of the New Testament have been proven reliable. Now, we don't have the original manuscripts of either the Old or the New Testament. But what we have are accurate accounts of what the originals said. And we know that because we can compare them, and and they come close to um, the originals. So we have a bunch of manuscripts that we can compare, and also they're closer to the originals than any um, ancient history. Now, we have over 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And some of these go as far back as 19 years. There's something called the John Rylands um, Fragment, and that dates to 115 A.D. And so, you know, John finished his gospel around 96, so this dates only in some 19 years. Also, we have the Bometer Papyri, which is, dates to about 200. This contains most of John, First and Second Peter, and Jude. There's what's called the Chester Baby Papyri. This dates to 250 A.D., and it contains almost the entire New Testament from 250 A.D. The Bible was completed in, in 100 A.D. Now, we have entire Bibles, three to be exact, that date to around the 300s. They're called the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Alexandrus, and the Codex Sinaiticus. And so, you know, these ancient manuscripts date within 200 years of the originals. And then we also have other translations you know, that, that date back early. And so if you compare all of these, both the Greek manuscripts and also the other translation, the total comes out to be 24,970. So there's a lot. Now, when you compare all this to the histories that we have that are outside the Bible, this is really amazing. For example, besides the New Testament, Homer's Iliad contains the most manuscripts of any other ancient history which are 643. And the gap between them and the original, when he actually lived, is 500 years. Next, there's Demotheses, which totals some 200 manuscripts. His earliest manuscript was 1,400 years after he wrote. Other manuscripts, such as Herodias, or, um, Herodias Plato, Tacitus, Caesar, Pliny, these manuscripts, they only have 20 of them per writer, and the gap between them is some 1,000 years. And so all these other histories, there's 
only a few manuscripts and a huge gap. The Bible stands alone in having many manuscripts that we can compare from and also a short gap. Sir Frederick Kenyon, great archaeologist, said this. The interval then between the dates of, of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small to be in fact negligible and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written and has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. And so historians come out and say, man, you can trust the New Testament. It is historically reliable. Now, the third reason is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only logical evidence for the empty tomb. There's been a lot of theories that have come out, but all of them have been debunked. They all come up as being illogical. Some will say, well, I don't believe that Jesus ever, you know, ever existed. I can't believe that. Well, there's some 12 non-Christian historians that lived within 150 years of the life of Jesus that proved that he really existed. Non-Christians who wrote about his life and verified that he, you know, his life, his ministry, his death, the fact that his believers claimed that he rose again from the dead and they worshipped him. Some people say, well, yes, Jesus might have lived, but he really didn't die on the cross, as the Bible says. That's what the Muslims claim. But this, once again, this is debunked by history. Here's what Tacitus wrote. He wrote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and afflicted the most exquisite tortures of a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace, Christus or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the movement again broke out. And so he claimed, yeah, he, he died on the hand of Pontius Pilate on the Roman cross. And after that, Christianity broke out. Some say, well, Jesus didn't die on the cross, he, but he only passed out. Maybe he was in like some kind of a drug-induced coma. Well, this bears no evidence because we have medical evidence that Jesus actually died. The Gospel of John, for example, claims that when the Roman soldier pierced his side, both blood and water came out. Well, one scientist took this upon themselves and wrote about this in 1986 in the Journal of American Medical Association. And here's what they said. Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound in the side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear... Thus, thrust between the right rib probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Jesus was dead on the cross, and the people who were there were professional executioners. They knew when someone was truly dead, and they knew Jesus was dead, which is why they didn't break his legs. Some say, well, maybe the women and the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Maybe they got lost, you know, that day. Well, the women watched where Jesus was buried. The, the Roman authorities and Matthew says that this tomb was sealed with the Roman seal. So that, that couldn't be missed, right? And so it was impossible for, for them to go to the wrong tomb. Well, maybe the people who saw Jesus actually had a hallucination. Maybe they never really saw the resurrection of Jesus. Well, it's impossible for all these people to have the same hallucination at one time. 
And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that over 500 people saw him at once, and some of them were still living to that day. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea stole his body. That's some people say, well, he had no reason to steal Jesus' body, right, if he was a true disciple. And if he wasn't a true disciple, he could have pointed to Jesus' body that he stolen to prove that Christianity was false. And so, and, and it makes no sense because the Roman soldiers were there guarding the tomb. So they were there on Saturday, which was a Sabbath, and they also were there until Sunday morning when the woman rose. So there was no time for him to steal the body. Now it starts getting even deeper. Maybe the Jewish leaders stole Jesus' body. But once again, they could have proved Christianity wrong by showing Jesus' body rather than having to persecute the disciples and telling them to be quiet and talking about Jesus rising again from the dead. So they could have just pointed out the body. But the one that always, is always pointed to and the greatest argument that people try to use is, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe they felt bad because they followed this guy, and so they wanted to make up their own religion so they can get money from people and exalt themselves in power and live a powerful life above people. Well, this is what they try to claim in Matthew 28, 11 through 15. When they find out that Jesus' body was gone, they paid the people, the soldiers there, to claim that the body was actually stolen, that he was not risen. But... There's a problem with this. First of all, many hoaxes have come out. The body of Jesus has never been discovered. Second, if the disciples stole the body of Jesus and made up Christianity, they wouldn't have started in Jerusalem to do it. The same place that he was crucified. People don't do that. If the disciples stole Jesus' body and they, and, you know, and they really didn't see him raising him from the dead, then all of them wouldn't be willing to give their lives for Jesus Christ. You see, they didn't live healthy, wealthy, and prosperous lives and exalt themselves above people. They were humble bondservants of Jesus Christ who were willing to live lives of suffering and all of them willing to be martyred for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? As Peter said, because of the hope that the fact that they have the blessed hope that their hope is in heaven and because Jesus Christ died again and rose again, they would have that hope in heaven one day. They didn't live earthly lives. They lived heavenly lives Focus on the future that would come. And so their lives were changed. They had a witness of Jesus that they saw him raise again, and then they sealed their testimony with their own blood. Now people say, well, yeah, the Muslims, right? They die for what they believe is true. But there's something different here. If the disciples really didn't see Jesus rising in from the dead, they wouldn't be dying for something that they believe was true. They'd be dying for something that they knew for a fact was not true. And people don't do that. It would only have taken one of them when their head was laid to be martyred or when they were to be crucified for them to say, hey, you know, we just made this all up. It's just all a hoax. I did it for myself. But all of them were willing to lay down their lives because their hope was not on this earth, but their hope was to be in heaven. Why was their hope in heaven? Because Jesus, they saw, died, rose again. They watched him ascend into heaven. They said, wow, we want to go there. Until we go there, we're going to continue to preach this message and suffer if need be. Until we go there. Something changed their life. And that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only logical conclusion is that Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. There's an all-powerful God that exists who can do miracles. We have an accurate history book, both internally and externally through the Bible. And we have logical conclusion that the tomb is still empty and Jesus Christ is in heaven. So the only thing for us to do now is to respond to who Jesus is, 
what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Regardless of how smart somebody is, whether they're a scientist or an engineer or whatever, you don't need education. All you need to know is Jesus. The fact that you can point them to him. The fact that he rose again from the dead.